0: now michael is all by himself at the piano and he's just going to do a little exercise
1: that he was taught running the scales and it all isn't it with one finger he uses all of his five fingers to do this there's michael and showed all by himself at the piano
2: Michael Sherwood hails from a deep lineage of musicians, and similar to his family members, he has formed a solid career in the music industry. From his early days growing up in Las Vegas and forming the band Logic, Michael eventually befriended the Toto band members, which led to his longtime friendship with Steve Porcaro. In addition to his songwriting collaborations with Steve, Michael has also worked with Air Supply, Anderson Bruford Wakeman and & Howe. Chris Squire, Conspiracy, Circa, Lisa Loeb, and Andrew Rosenthal and their incredible Swifty's Bizarre Album Project. Recently, Michael was involved with both David Page and Steve Picaro, with writing duties on Toto 14 and has co-produced Steve Picaro's soon-to-be-released debut solo album titled Someday Somehow. Inside Music Cast welcomes Michael Sherwood. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Hey, my pleasure. Hey, Michael. You know, as as you know, we're always curious about, you know, how our guests, you know, found music and and how they became interested, their influences and their music education. And, you know, we think we know where you got your started, you know, as your parents were both very musical. In fact, uh, your dad uh, was a big band leader, right?
0: Yes, he was, uh, as were my grandparents. Well, so in the uh, 20s, 30s, they were uh, vaudevillians. So, yeah, it goes way back.
2: It wasn't your dad that bought you your first keyboard uh, when you were, I think you were like three or four years old or something like that. It, 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 did you start playing right away? I, and I'm, I'm sure your dad, being the, the musician he was, probably was teaching you all the basics around that time, right?
0: Well, you know, my dad was kind of, he played it kind of smart. He he noticed that I could pick out, you know, I mean, I started just, he started just showing me little little things I could play. Uh, uh, it was just a piano, big grand piano in the house that he was always sitting at writing arrangements. But I mean, I don't remember a time when I wasn't playing. Uh, so I started picking out melodies mm-hmm. by my ear when I was young, and then and then my dad taught me scales, kind mm-hmm. of got me going with scales. But uh, he noticed that I was good at picking out uh, things by ear. If I heard something, he'd let me kind of find it so uh he was he had this uh good instinct where he he didn 't really force any lessons or, or a whole lot of teaching. He just kind of sat there and let me figure stuff out by myself, uh-huh. and then there came that moment where he 's like, all right now i 'm going to show you what you 're doing, but he really let me go by myself for a long time because he he wanted me to start with with music as a feeling first, right. and not so much as uh information yeah so uh, he he noticed that I had. Uh, an ability to to hear things and find find things pretty quickly, and he let me go you and know? kind of let me go at it
2: yeah. for
1: a good long time
2: yeah well i mean in, in, not to exclude your mom, I know she was a, a percussionist, and she also played uh, gigs with your your dad too um, did, was she was she involved in in, in bringing you up uh, with music and, and helping you out with that?
0: well, absolutely, because we grew up in Vegas in yeah. the sixties settled down in the sixties uh, in vegas sixty one and we were there all the way through 1980, and my parents were working on the strip the whole time in one facility or another. Uh, my my dad was doing big band concerts. And he was also, they had a lounge act. My mother was the lead singer. She played vibraphones and lead vocals first. Wow. And then eventually she jumped on the drums and started playing some drums. But uh, yeah, grew, going up in Vegas around the whole Rat Pack crowd, that was kind of my living room, you know. My dad used to do walk-ins into the playroom, you know. He'd walk in with Milton Burrow, He'd walk in with Uncle Fester from whatever, and he, or he'd walk in with uh, Dan Rowan from Laughing, or or Sammy Davis, or Frank, or whatever. Or, I mean, these yeah. people were constantly in and out of my my house. Yeah, my dad, my dad's first wife from years ago was uh, was Judy Garland's sister, so Judy was around a lot too, and it was just an interesting time to grow up. It was. I, I I compare it to, like, Rob Reiner when he talks about being around all the writers for the show of shows. It's kind of like that, except mm-hmm. it was the musical version of that. It was yeah. like the Rat Pack was my living room
3: mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: growing up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's
3: amazing. That's na- amazing. And then we have, of course, your younger brother, Billy, who's also been a guest on Inside MusicCast. And he also has a very solid music career. But I guess that just the feeling that me and Rick got uh, that you two, outside of Brotherhood, you guys have a – must have pretty special bond just that uh your relationship is is uh, revolves around around music it makes it more special right
0: absolutely it was always that way uh you know and uh as we speak right now it's his birthday so uh, uh happy birthday, happy billy. birthday, billy. Yeah, happy birthday <laughs> yeah. billy happy birthday billy <laughs> But yeah he was uh, he was 6 years younger than me and mm-hmm. uh so yeah well, growing up he, he you know he took to it too he just started out uh, uh drums wanted to play drums and uh then he eventually picked up the base we he joined my band Logic when
3: he was 16. Well, you you started. Let's talk about Logic a little bit. You were living in Vegas at the time, and and uh, you and a friend named uh, Jimmy Hahn, he you know, guy who started the band. And of course, like you said, Billy joined. Uh, you know, right around the, you know, when you guys were around 16 years old. And tell us about the early days of the band because, uh, wow, you know, uh, you guys were ma- basically just gigging clubs, and and uh, or were you pretty serious about writing music then? Tell us about the the music at this at this tender age of around. 16, what was happening?
0: Well, i, I got to say, when, we, when Logic first got together, it was just myself, Jim, well, Jimmy Hahn and I met in third grade, we've been best friends since third grade, still are, he's playing on this new uh, Steve Car record I'm working on, which we'll talk about later, cool. but uh, Steve, uh, Jimmy and I, you know, have been as close as you could be throughout mm-hmm. our entire lives, and we had a band called Livewire uh, in, in around 1974, mm-hmm. 75, So. And then by 77, we grabbed a guy, Mark Fletcher's his name, played bass, and Gary Starnes on drums was just a four-piece. And we basically played, I mean, we were hot shots, man. It was, we were playing <laughs> uh, Romantic Warrior, stuff from Return to Forever, we were playing a lot of Zappa, we were wow. playing, I mean, we were taking huge bites yeah. um, for our age. Uh, we were playing a lot of Return to Forever, a, a lot of uh, Jeff Beck stuff, right. uh, the blow-by-blow stuff, uh, and then, of course, we were playing a lot of the Yes music, but... We weren't riding at first. We were just, you know, yeah. getting our stops and together.
4: Yeah, that's. Uh, and of
0: course, during this period, Billy was quite a bit younger. So he, uh, you know, uh, as a, he would come in and say, "I want to play drums on yes," and we would just go, "No," and we'd laugh at him, and you know, because that was funny. Yeah. Although he has the last laugh now. On
3: the <laughs> well, it's funny your your story of you know you guys being so young. And taking on such music like, you know, uh, you know, just the real heavy fusion stuff. Um, oh, big. it's, 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 it's very complex, but it really almost parallels that story of, of the Toto guys at that same age. I mean, it was, uh, you know, Logic. Wasn't that sort of the avenue that you guys actually met the guys from Toto too?
0: Well, that's, that's funny you'd say that because when we, uh, moved out, uh, this, uh, this wonderful guy, Barry Morgan, he had heard us through a friend and came to Vegas and wanted to, heard us play, and said, you guys need to write your own material, mm-hmm. and we're going to move you out to Los Angeles and pursue a record deal. Uh, so we started writing at that point, uh, you know, uh, pretty good songs. But, I mean, we were we were pretty green in the songwriting thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, we moved out to L.A., and we got into a band house and struggled through 1980, 81, 82, 83, trying, doing, you know, trying to get... Uh, well, what do you call them, showcases and playing for record labels back mm-hmm. in the day when you would be seeking such things. Uh, you know, in the uh, the proverbial band house where we all lived with our girlfriends, <laughs> just like in you know, a huddled mass, and uh, we just were cranking day jobs and just cranking away and trying to become better writers. And our manager had the foresight to put us in a place called Leeds, uh, Andy Leeds rehearsal place in North Hollywood. He said, "If you're going to play with the big boys, you got to play where the rehearsal where the big boys rehearse." So he put us in Leeds, and we had been rehearsing there for a year or two. And Toto, that was their headquarters, you know, that's where they did all their stuff. And they had just swept the Grammys with Toto Four, and Logic was playing, and uh, one of our techs, uh, one of our technical technical guys came in and goes, some guy with glasses out here thinks you're really good. he <laughs> to come in. And I'm like, Jesus, it's either Jeff or Steve. Yeah. And it was Jeffrey. Uh, Jeff came in and stood and listened for a while. And goes, do you mind if I go get the guys? And we're like, Shh, no, go ahead. You know, next <laughs> you know in, comes, in comes Steve. In comes Luke. And they're sitting there and they're listening. And they saw... Uh, earlier version of themselves in us. I mean, we really were doing, you know, they just were laughing, like, check these guys out, they're like a mini Toto, you know. (laughs) We had the high voice singer guy at the time, Uh, we had two keyboards, you know, it was pretty much the same kind of setup, you Uh know what I mean? Uh, You know, as far as instrumentally, we we, we really were so a mirror image of what they were doing. But we were very influenced by bands like Yes, and at the time, Yes, and Genesis, and we even, even the police were starting to get in there a little bit. But uh, yeah, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey kind of got the ball rolling, and uh, next thing you know, uh, David and Steve took us under their wing, uh, Steve Piccaro and Dave Page, yeah. and produced our first record on A&M and put us uh, up in the band house uh, up above the manor where the headquarters was, and we were off to the races. And, uh, you know, Jeffrey pretty much put us on the map, you
2: know? From that chance meeting, obviously, like you just said, you know, they, they ended up, uh, Paige and, and Steve Ricard ended up producing your Nomadic yeah. Sands album. And then, uh, but I also understood that uh, you guys also at the time reached out to uh, Joseph Williams uh, to sing some of the, the higher parts uh, on that album, but I guess he wasn't available at that time.
0: Well, you know what, well, we, I knew Joseph because I just heard him from in town and I knew him and I was very impressed with the, with his pedigree, you know, with his musical family speaks for itself. And uh, Joseph and Mark were just, you know, we saw them around Leeds all the time. And I, I had heard Joseph's first record. He was just finished his first record. It was it was a blue cover. I think it was just called Joseph Williams. Mm-hmm. And it had some great songs on there. Uh, I think he was doing a lot of work with Jay Groska and Pauly Gordon and some people like that. Yep. Uh, and our our lead singer we had a little falling out with, so we had lost our high our high voice guy, and we wanted to fill that slot, so yeah, we approached Joseph to join logic, and you know we, what balls we had to go ask a guy who just finished his first solo album if he <laughs> wants to join a band its like he, he gracefully declined <laughs> and uh and then uh so we uh, went went ahead and went without uh the lead singer, and we just, Billy and I handled the vocals. We split it up between us, and uh, so Joseph continued his solo career, and you know, years later, he ended up joining Toto, but yeah, we we, we offered him the gig in Logic uh, a couple years before Toto reached
4: out to him.
2: Hey, Michael and Eddie, uh, let's pause for a minute, and uh, let's play a track from the 1985 album Nomadic Sands, of course, from the band Logic, and this is the track called Push So Hard from our guest today, Michael Sherwood on Inside Music Cast. just sticking with logic here for a second um you know as as we mentioned you you didn't record logic's first album until 85 so um tell me you know what those years you you know you'd moved out to la you moved the whole band out there so tell me about those years in between the move to la and the recording of the album tell me what they were like i mean how did you how were you breaking into the la music scene and was it difficult for you personally as, as well as the other guys in the band
0: Well, yeah, it was a struggle. I mean, I was selling pianos at Sherman Clay. You know, Mm -hmm. I was a piano salesman, you know, um, teaching people the wonders of, uh, you know, a kawaii and uh, the (laughs) metal-plated tuning pins and all that stuff. Uh, And uh, showing them what the middle pedal did, you know, things like that. And uh, we were struggling. Uh, Everybody was doing phone sales and doing what they had to do. And then at night, we would go to Leeds, and we'd rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And, yeah, we were making our way through the scene and meeting Mm -hmm. people and playing clubs. Uh, We played Madame Wong's, Madame Wong's West, uh, you know, Cesaris, I want to say. Uh, All all the clubs in L.A. that were happening at the time. Uh, But uh, it it wasn't until Jeffrey walked in that we actually got on the map, and that was probably around, eighty. I want to say, late 83, 84 when that happened. And once they put us up in the band house, we pretty much recorded demo versions, very high-end demo versions, mm-hmm. uh, on 8-track tape, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of bouncing, flying into vocals, all the techniques that we learned from uh, Tom Knox and Eddie Simeone and Massenberg and some of the guys that were you know, satellites around the Toto scene. Right. We were learning from the best. Uh, Tom Fletcher, who was our engineer at the time, mm-hmm. also a very dear friend. Uh, he worked on Candyman and some other things. with uh, uh, But uh, he, he was up there, and we had pretty much done the whole record one time. So by the time we did the actual record, it was sort of a snapshot of our demos. And, uh, it definitely went up a level when we finally recorded the, level, uh, the record. But I got but, in retrospect, I listened back to some of the demos, and uh, I kind of got in the mindset of from then on, making sure that whenever we're doing demos that we somehow record them to the where they could be keepers, because there was a lot of magic in the demos that that went away on the record, yeah, but they were reclaimed on another level, and of course it was it was better, mm-hmm. but still you uh, know. You know, there was something something about those original demos that uh, really resonated with me.
4: Yeah.
0: Uh, but, you know, the record came out well. But you've you got to realize, we were influ- influenced by progressive groups. And, and at this time, thank God Toto swept the Grammys, because at this time, everything was turning into, you know, progressive music was considered passe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pompous, and uh, you know, and then here comes uh, Elvis Costello and punk and hair bands, heavy metal, yeah, and yeah. all that stuff. Lover boy and Quarterflash and all the shit. And we all of a sudden, <laughs> by the time we got our record done, it was like, all right, we finished our record, great. Now what? It's like, well, you're passe. <laughs> so oh, uh, shit. <laughs> so our timing was a little off. You yeah. know, the music that we would liked to make mm-hmm. was probably a little more. Cerebral and message oriented than uh, than the industry wanted. So we were turned down by a lot of labels before uh,
2: mm-hmm.
0: before A and M picked us up.
4: You
2: know. Yeah. Well, you guys also uh, toured, and I think you guys even opened some shows for Supertramp. And but you and you and your bandmate uh, Jimmy Hahn also worked together with the band Air Supply. And this was primarily in support of their tours, right? I mean, did you ever record with them as well, or was it primarily just touring?
0: You know, we uh, fell into that. It was after Logic had broken up, and uh, Billy uh, actually Logic. Turn we went, uh, changed our name several times. I don't know what we what name we ended up with. I can't even remember. But Greg Ladani, God rest his soul, he was producing us at the time, and Jody Cortez was was our new drummer. And uh, so uh, during that period, uh, you know, things got a little. I don't know, frustrating, and Billy and Guy broke away to start World Trade with Mark T. Williams and Bruce Gowdy. So we had parted ways amicably. Uh, Jimmy and I went one way, and Billy and Guy, Allison, went the other way. And Jimmy and I started a group that was a short-lived group. It was just called the Michael Sherwood Orchestra, just for kicks. I just wanted to use my dad's name, but put my first name in there. And that was a... That was pretty fun. We played some local clubs uh, at my place. I think was the name of it. Uh, we did some shows, but then I heard uh, Graham Russell was writing a musical. He's uh, the song, the main songwriter in Air Supply. He was writing a musical that Fletcher was working on. It was called Heart of the Rose. It was a side project, huh. and uh, Jimmy and I were hired to do some uh, some work for keyboards and guitar with Graham Russell. We were introduced. And then Graham asked Jimmy and I to join up, to join Air Supply. He also took our, our bass player at the time was uh, Larry Antonino, who's a wonderful, wonderful bass player, great musician. So he came in. So uh, David Young, myself, pretty much my whole rhythm section ended up being the uh, being this rhythm section for Air Supply. So we went out on tour with them, uh, and I ended up writing 10 songs over a span of three or four of their records. Because when we were on tour, you know, I was more interested in writing songs than being in the band. So I kind of nuzzled up to Graham Russell and said, you know, you want to do some writing. Um, Lucky for me at the time, I had, Steve Piccaro and I had a song recorded by Michael Jackson. So so Graham was impressed enough with that to uh, invite me into the writing realm. So, I wrote a lot of songs of their supply through those years, between 89 and I want to say like 93 or something like that.
4: Well, the interesting.
0: Picaro um, had left uh, Toto around 80, right after Fahrenheit. Right. And uh, they invited me to sing on Fahrenheit. I did uh, uh, all the vocal stacks on the chorus of uh, Till the End.
4: Right, yeah.
0: Then, Great. Where, where Steve Picaro and I really linked was uh, his song Leah
4: mm-hmm, yep. I
0: came in and I did backgrounds with uh, Don Henley did a few in there and I, but I did the, the backgrounds and Steve and I really had a connection he said to me I'll never forget it too he says you know your voice you're, you're the voice of my music I want, you have the right voice for the kind of songs that I want to write
4: mm-hmm. so
0: we started a writing relationship mm-hmm. uh, that uh, <laughs> we finally finished the record by the way <laughs> took, like a few weeks
2: yeah, we'll talk about that in a bit. That was bit.
0: a long one. That was a long one. But we've been writing that record for 20 years. That's right. Seriously, yeah. That's amazing. Long, long, long but anyway, yes, the Air Supply thing really you know, was, uh, was fruitful. It was a good period for us. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, the audiences were great. It was just, you know, beautiful women and their daughters. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, poor, the poor guys that got drugged
4: to the show, you know.
2: Hey. I want to go back though, real quick, because you mentioned Michael Jackson. Yeah. Um, you know that song for all time uh, didn't make the Dangerous album, which it was intended for. It was, it, 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 I think, Michael Jackson ended up using his his track called "Gone Too Soon." But I think your song ended up later on the twenty fifth anniversary edition of of Thriller. So, and, but regarding that track for all time, I'm assuming you might have gone back into the studio to update it, I mean, you know, since almost 15 years or more had passed between the release of Dangerous and the Thriller Anniversary uh, edition. So, w- did that happen? Were you involved in updating the track in any capacity?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, we uh, we recorded the original back then, and uh, and then it got shelved. So, just for kicks, I the only version that I had, I sang the lead on. But I kept Michael's background vocals, so that was always fun to play for people. Yeah, the yeah. song that I wrote was uh, Steve Car and Michael Jackson sings the background.
4: <laughs> <laughs> That's but, pretty uh,
0: cool. That song sort of languished in the in the ether for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, I believe Lionel Richie picked it up and did a version with Nathan and some other people, but I never heard it. Mm-hmm. He said it was great, but I never heard it, and I've been looking for it on YouTube to see if it ever comes huh. out. But I never heard it. But but uh, we had given up on that song. I mean, literally. I mean, we we uh, tried to get it to some other people uh, somewhat successfully, but nothing ever became of it. So we just moved on. And uh, I'm telling you, Steve called me in 2006 and just said, "Are you, you know, sit out Are you sitting down? <laughs> you know? So, yeah, why? Michael's <laughs> putting this on the... The only new song on Thriller 25.
4: <laughs> oh, cool.
0: I couldn't believe it. That's I could cool. not believe it. So, yeah, he went in and uh, he re- re-sang it. And they added some uh, orchestral stuff. But uh, the bones, the skeleton, the bones, I think, pretty much were the same. Uh, yeah. The track, yeah, the track was pretty much the track. It was just, uh, you know, altered uh, and brought up to date. And, uh, wow, it's crazy. Yeah. Crazy.
2: Well, you know, we definitely want to talk more about, you know, your connections to Toto and Steve Picaro, in in a little bit. But before we do that, um, we wanted to briefly chat about a couple of other projects and connections you've been involved with, one of which was a solo album you released in uh, 97 called Tangle Town. And uh, on this album, you know, compared to much of your earlier work, I I could tell, you know, after listening to a lot of what you've done in the past, you know, from Logic to some of the other projects, that this project – in my mind, was where you kind of wanted to be in terms of, of writing, because I know you really take writing seriously. And Tangletown has a, a maturity to it that, you know, you can tell you, you had developed that it developed from, you know, many years of honing your craft. And would you agree with that?
0: It was by far my most personal work. And it yeah. was, I never felt that my writing, I mean, I wasn't that involved in the writing and logic. Logic was mostly, uh, honestly, it was mostly uh, Billy and jimmy and guy uh-huh. and i was sort of i was on the side writing with a gentleman named julius robinson right who's a wonderful uh, lyricist lyricist mm-hmm. dear friend and him and i had been writing for years and uh... yeah tangletown was a reflection of the work that i was doing that was mine you know that was my voice uh... my inner voice as well as my voice voice but uh... Yeah, your your instincts are correct on Tangletown. That is yeah. where I felt like I had arrived uh, mm-hmm. as a writer and found my my own thing. Yeah. Oh uh, so, yeah, well spotted. That was definitely a definitely miles miles away from logic. Yeah. And uh, anything else I had done up to then, the air supply stuff, I was doing a lot of co-writing. But the Tangletown was a very personal record. Yeah. It was a very difficult time of my life as far as, you know, my, uh... <laughs> well, let me put it this way. I used to play this place called Genghis Cohen, and in in the, in the little uh, magazine that they would put out to tell who's playing, <laughs> it, it, this is the way the guy put it. He said, love hasn't always been kind to Michael Sherwood, but his loss is your gain every <laughs> Friday night.
4: <laughs> oh, my <Gosh>. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: great. That's great.
3: Oh, that's amazing. Uh, I
0: asked about that one.
3: Michael, you're talking about you know the how sort of intimate the song was for you and personal. But let's dig down just a little bit more about the the, the lyric writing because you teamed up yeah. uh, with Julius Robinson and and uh, tell me a little bit about your writing process with Julius. Did you collaborate on you know for most of the tracks or did you each write separately? How would that work?
0: Yeah, uh, we wrote them all all together. Julius mm-hmm. and I. I met him when I was selling pianos at Sherman Clay. He was another piano salesman. Okay and we both got our asses fired because we would just, uh, you know, we would close, we would turn the lights off in the front of the shop after the manager left. We'd just go in the back and sit at the piano. And I really learned a lot about uh, crafting lyrics from Julius. He was quite a bit my my original mentor and teacher as lyric writing. He was... uh, Came from the school of uh, Paul Simon and uh, and Bernie Taupin and people like that. Yeah, yeah. He really showed me what it was like to craft a lyric and to work a lyric and to and to rewrite and to uh, overwrite and uh, and really get get a lot of material in there uh, to pick from. Uh, as cause previous to that, I would just I was I would just spit it out. and Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. He's the one that taught me how to dig in my heels and really strive for, for great lyrics. Yeah. Um, which, uh, and that, that changed my process quite a bit. So, yes, Julius was my... Pretty much, I could, I could say our relationship was very Elton and, and Bernie. Okay. Very much so. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of those songs on Tangle Town, not all of them, but quite a few of them were just... Julius would just hand me these finished lyrics. Songs like Losing Faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah some of those some of the songs that sound like they're the most personal actually are him reflecting back my situations wow a song like stowaway which was about uh, me finding out my daughter wasn't mine after 8 months and found out on father's day and and uh, he wrote this lyric called stowaway that sounds like you know the the deepest lyric i've ever written yeah. and he wrote the lyrics
4: wow but he wrote
0: he wrote them through my experience but uh he was great at latching on to whatever was happening in my world, and kind of, kind of throwing it back out there. And uh, it's a great, great lyricist, man, Julius.
2: Wow. Yeah, sticking with writing, um, you know, throughout the course of your career, you know, you seem to work well when you, you know, collaborate with another writer. You've done a, a lot of collaboration. But when you sit down and write songs, when you have that opportunity to sit down and write songs on your own, tell me about... Your process. I mean, do you take a different approach each time you write, or or do you have any ritualistic approaches that you stick to from you know session to session?
0: Yeah, when I write on my own, it's a lot of just noodling. Or well, it, there's you know I've done so many different ways. You know, I have been I've I've been the guy like the to, Toto calls me to come in and just be sort of a to, to just do lyrics for existing tracks, and they have melodies where they're just humming whatever. And so I've worked that way, and I've worked the other way, where someone will hand me great lyrics, and I just sit there and I write the music. But when I'm by myself, it's one of two ways: either I'll I'll have a title idea. I always look for what I call the chewy center of the tootsie pop. You know, <laughs> and if I find I love I that, find that That's chewy great. center, yeah. and then I work I work my way back out to the you know I work backwards from whatever you know.
3: If, yeah. That's good.
0: It's like, you know, what is it Shakespeare? You know, you, well, I've got all the words now, let's just get them in the right order. You know, that kind
4: <laughs> yeah, of thing. Right, so, right.
0: Um, it's it, it depends. Like, I have a song called My Gray Area, and I knew I, I knew what I wanted to do with it. I knew I had the idea clear in my head. I sat down at the piano, and, and it all kind of came out at once. There's other ones where I sit down, and I just craft a lyric, and I worry about the music later. Or sometimes I'll, I'll have a sit there, be noodling on the piano, I'll have some theme, and I'll just start mumbling. And I'll make sure and record my mumblings, and then I just start filling in the spaces. And again, always looking for that chewy center. And as soon as I hit on that, to me, the song is finished. It's just yeah. a question of fleshing it out. But once I know where the center is, to me, it's as good as finished.
4: It's yeah. all
3: a
0: question of, of process from there, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah very cool.
0: I mean, I've been having the pleasure of... Uh, teaching a master class at the Los Angeles uh, Songwriter uh, School, Songwriter School. And I've been working with uh young writers and um sharing my process and I'm telling you as much as I'm considered a teacher over there, I I walk out of there learning. I, I every I'm still learning. It never ends.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean,
3: something
0: there
2: Hey, guys, I want to take another break because there's a track on the Tangletown album that I really want to check out and play for everybody. And it's a track called Walking on Water. Very beautiful track from our guest today, Michael Sherwood on Inside Music Cast.
1: On the floor
3: talk to us a little bit about uh, how you might have become connected to uh, Anderson, Bruford, Wakeman and how. And and, uh, and your eventual just involvement with their Union album. Did you tour with them? I, no, no, I
0: did not. Okay. Uh, what happened was, the way that went down is uh, it's strange. It's like it came together, my, Billy and my relationship with Yes came through two completely different channels. Mm-hmm. Uh, Billy had been signed, his band World Trade was signed to Polydor, and the the uh, and r guy, I want to say, that signed him was the lead singer from Gentle Giant, a guy named Derek Shulman. Mm-hmm. Great singer. And he signed Billy uh, to World Trade, and Billy was sort of a Chris Squire clone at that time. He played bass quite a bit like him and sang, sang kind of a, bit, a lot like Anderson and Squire. So, Derek introduced Chris Squire to Billy, and Chris came and guested on the first World Trade Record. So that, that connection was already made on Billy's side. Now, Steve Picaro and I were writing songs, and Steve was working with a guy in Jonathan Elias who was working... It was right after John Anderson had done the City of Angels album where he used yeah. all the Toto guys come right. up your hip mm-hmm. for that
4: record. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But it's uh, John Anderson doing, working with all the L.A. session cats and right. Jeff, and Dave, and Steve. And I met John through those sessions. I was kind of uh, flying the wall, hanging around, hanging with Steve, Carl. And uh, so I was just kind of working the edges of those sessions. And then... Uh, I was introduced to Jonathan Elias, and uh, as was Jimmy, and Jimmy came in to do some guitar work, I think, for Anderson on something this or that. Anyway, cut to the uh, cut to the future there, and all of a sudden Billy was asked to do some work, I think, on the ABWH record, but he was he was already working with Chris in a different capacity. So he, he declined the gig uh, to do the background vocals on that and but he told them my brother sings uh, and he sounds a, a bit like me you might want to ask him. So Billy just kind of threw the ball over my way and Jonathan hired both Jimmy Hahn and I to come to New York to work on a Union record which was it wasn't called Union at the time it was uh, Anderson, Rupert, Wakeman and Howe's second record. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that became quite scattered there were so many you know that's When, yes, we couldn't even be in the same room together. There was, yes, West uh, with Trevor and Billy and Chris and Tony. (laughs) Right,
4: right. There was
0: W.H. There was a very fragmented different camps, and there was a lot of things going down on who owned the name, and Chris had the name. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. So Jonathan Elias, with the best intentions, he wanted to just get the record done, and he ended up using a lot of session guys, like a lot of session guys. Yeah. And I ended up singing backgrounds on like seven things. I was in there with a gentleman named Ian Lloyd, who's a great singer. Uh, he was in the band Stories, the Louie Louie theme from the Louis C.K., that guy. That's okay. It. Yeah. And they pretty much cut him and I loose in the studio and said, just, you know, do some background vocals. And I'd, so I just kind of went in there with, with Ian and we were, we had carte blanche to do whatever ideas we wanted. Wow. I was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But I didn't feel a lot of participation from any of the Yes guys. Mm-hmm. I didn't work with any of them. There, nobody was around. It was, just, it was just me and Ian and wow. the engineer. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, we all know how that story ends. They ended up uh, throwing it all together. And luckily, there was a tour mm-hmm. that worked. But mm-hmm. the record was sort of shunned as one of their least least favorite uh, among their catalog. But I had a good time doing
4: it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well this this connection to yes, I mean it's it's one that's uh it was long lasting in a sense for you, kind of incestuous in a way because you were you know, from Anderson Bruford Wakeman and Howe to, you know, your involvement with Chris Squire's conspiracy, you know, even over to Circa ah. Circa. I mean here 's my question though every every experience you 've had you know throughout your career obviously teaches you something, but what did you take away from these these experiences with John Anderson, Bill Bruford, Rick Wakeman, Steve Howe, and Chris Squire you know those icons in, in the world of progress I, to be
0: honest with you to be hundred percent honest the only the only people in the in the yes camp that I really know uh-huh. and really worked with on a, on a level of you know, like I was in the trenches doing the work and yeah. having a friendship, was uh, Chris.
4: Uh-huh.
0: Uh, later, when uh, Alan was in Circa, that's when I kind of met Alan, but uh, Anderson, um, you know, kind of a hard guy to get to know. He was, as much as I, he was aware of me. He was aware of my brother uh, as well, but... <sighs> I can't say that I was really hands-on with anybody in that camp except Chris, Tony Kay and uh, and um, and Alan. Okay. However, Trevor Rabin hired me to work on a movie he was doing called Jack Frost. Oh, cool! And uh, I did all of the B three in that group with Lou Molino on drums and uh, and some of those people uh, uh, and Trevor and Lily Hayden. So when I did that. Um, that's I I got close to, with Trevor Trevor became a friend uh, so Steve Howe, I, I you know I don't know if he'd recognize me if he saw me in the street you know backstage <laughs> at a concert you know I'm Billy's brother oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> you know like yeah. that um, but I gotta tell you out of that whole thing working with Chris and playing some of that fish out of water stuff right that was one of the highlights of my musical career because I was such a fan of that record, and working with Chris Squire was just such an unbelievable experience, and just such a kind man, and a giving artist, and just such a thunderous, amazing player. I mean, yeah. man, he's like coming, at, it's like a herd of elephants coming, actually, when he turns that bass on and cranks it, man, it's just yeah, amazing. I mean, yeah, that, that that conspiracy soundstage show we did was, whoo, that was one of the highlights of my life.
2: Yeah. That's one thing about Yes's music that even as a kid, I picked up on was, was uh, listening to Chris Squire's bass parts on, on their albums, so oh I mean, yeah I mean it just he had, a, he had a sound like no one else. you know I mean it was, it was just something about the way he played and whatever instrumentation and amps and stuff he used, it just he, had, he certainly had a unique ID on that band.
0: Oh, yeah, he was uh, melodic, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the crunchy, that crunchy pick stuff he did, and mm-hmm. you know this, is, this was Billy's hero. You know, and and mentor and mm-hmm. one of his best friends for years, and uh, Billy really pushed Chris uh, to to do to step outside of the S situation. And yeah. there's a reason they call it conspiracy because it was kind of a personal joke that you know there you know it was originally mm-hmm. called the Chris Squire Experiment, which also had Mark T. Williams from World Trade and Steve Bacaro and Jimmy Hahn. That was okay. before conspiracy, but I wasn't in that group. I was actually touring with Airstrike at the time. But Conspir- uh, the, but the pre-conspiracy band was with uh, Picasso. The Toto, it, it, you know, it, yeah, again, very incestuous, as you said. There, yeah. was, uh, there was always this kind of crowd: the Yes camp and the Toto camp.
4: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And, hey, and when Yes and Toto went out on tour this last time, yeah. people were scratching their heads thinking that was a strange pairing. No, which, not at all. Uh, on the face of it, on the face of it, I understand that because. Toto was a little more jazzy and and you know, a little more poppy and not quite right for yes fans, and yes were maybe a little too esoteric and and uh, uh, you know for and progressive for the Toto pop fans, so that was a strange pairing, but to me, it just seemed like one big, the same big family i 've always been in yeah. that 's
2: a great angle yeah. that 's a great angle yeah Eddie and I saw that tour last year and yeah, no. uh, you know I, i'd say the majority of the people walking in were wearing you know the yes shirts you could tell that the crowd was a very pro yes sort of crowd and, and but i'll tell you i'll tell you i was sitting we were sitting around a, a lot of those 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 people and uh i think they were pretty blown away by toto i don't i think you're right i think they probably thought this is an odd pairing but after they heard toto they i think they were blown away
4: yeah, yeah <laughs> well, you
0: can't you can't deny their musicianship yeah. and uh, and uh, also the, that piece i mean also they looked out for each other on stage toto was very yeah. clear uh, and upfront about telling the audience that yes, we're their heroes.
4: Oh well, no, doubt. Uh, yeah, so they, they did. And they really
0: look. They were looking out for each other up there. Yeah. And uh, and they uh, have a song on Total 14 called "Great Expectations," right. which is to me one of the finest pieces of progressive music I've heard from any band in years. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I just think it's a great piece of music.
4: Mm-hmm. And
0: yeah. uh, uh, so I will say that when Chris had passed and Billy had stepped into his shoes. It was a very difficult, conflicted time for Billy because the sadness yeah. and the and the excitement and everything and the pressure of stepping into those shoes and all yeah. uh, you know. It was Billy was very happy to be surrounded by Paige and Prichar and the people that put us on the map. Yeah, that would really provided a nice security blanket for Billy when yeah. he went out on that tour. He was he was really sticking close to the Toto guys because that's uh, again they. Those were our people, man. Right. yeah, you know, so, mm-hmm. yeah it, was, it was a trippy time, man. <laughs>
3: <laughs> hey, Michael. Michael, me and uh, Rick have been talking about uh, uh, an album that you just released. Actually, it was this last year. It was called Groovy Lemon Pie, and uh, you yeah. did that with Christian Nesmith. And, uh, but we think it's fair. Is it fair to say <laughs> and uh, that there's a little bit of a psychedelic Brit pop, you know, sort of sprinkled over the tracks a little bit? Uh, you know, ecstasy comes to mind. Talk to us.
0: Yeah, I can I can openly admit that my favorite pop band is XTC. <laughs> <Yeah. I can laughs> op- openly admit that. Okay. And when I and when I get together with Christian Nesmith, that's kind of where him and I end up. We yeah. end up yeah. in the somewhere like if like if if like Peter Gabriel or, or Fish from Marillion or or yeah. Kevin Gilbert yes. ended up singing yeah. with Utopia or something. It's like it's a strange hybrid of of, of yeah. Gabriel X T C pop. So yeah, that, that was uh that wasn't deliberate. That's just the kind of music that we we like. And Nesmith is just this multi instrumental genius. And he would give me tracks like Sally's Ass or uh, or Amanda Beattie. Well, he would give me these tracks that were just finished and wonderful. And yeah. I and I would just drive around in my car and start saying things and <laughs> <laughs> Escaping the lyrics and melody, I had full reign. So, uh, but there was different; it depended on the song. But uh, that was over a, over a period of about fifteen years of writing before we finally put that together and released it. Yeah, those were, those were recorded as demos, wow. and then we decided, no, what? Screw it. Let's just let's just uh, you know put a little sh- uh, shellac on these and, and put them out. Why not?
2: So mm-hmm.
0: uh, I'm glad we did too, because I wanted to... Glad that stuff is finally getting heard.
2: Yeah, it was a fun album. I really enjoyed it, and and I know you've been told this before, but uh, if if you ever decided to do like a, a an album of Peter Gabriel covers, you you nail it because you, <laughs> you you have such a well, you have such a Peter Gabriel esque quality to your voice.
0: Yeah, and that's something that I've always always kind of had, but I didn't. It wasn't anything that I was deliberately going after. I just kind of have that gravel truck, backed yeah. over my lyrics kind of voice, but. <laughs> yeah. I will will say this, though. I was uh, very happy when uh, Mike Nesmith first heard our music, uh, Christian's daddy. Yeah. Um, He heard heard it, and he goes, man, you know who you sound like? And I'm like, okay, just say it. (laughs) Say it. And he goes, Richie Havens.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Ah, I love that. (laughs) That
0: was one of the highest compliments I ever got. Yeah, I'm used to the Gabriel.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I want to chat about uh, another incredible project that you were involved with called Swifty's Bazaar, and uh, it's, it's a collaboration between you and Andrew Rosenthal from the band Martini Ranch. And uh, first of all, how did tell me how you and Andrew connected and uh, tell us how Swifty's Bazaar was conceived.
0: Well, uh, I met Andy because he just lived in the neighborhood when I was uh, a composer at Elias, and he yeah. lived down the street. And actually, he came into Elias... Uh, because of uh, parking concerns. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we ended up seeing each other around town at the local sushi bars and wherever else we were hanging out during, yeah. up in that uh, Santa Monica area there. And we became friends. He had a group of the, at the time called Mot, members of the tribe, which was doing uh, what, what they fondly referred to as Heba Hop. It okay. was uh, Dr. Dreidel and Iceberg were their names. <laughs> and uh, okay. he, was, he was Iceberg. Uh-huh. And... Uh, we just became fast friends just through seeing each other around, and then we both realized we had a, we shared a fondness for the, the music of Frank Zappa. Okay. And we started uh, trying to do some songwriting, this and that, and all of a sudden we kind of fell into writing some instrumental music that was from the other side of the fence, if you were. Yeah. And then right. we started, we started con- uh, connecting these pieces with strange little, uh, you know, uh, spoken things and... You know, kind of like uh, we were inspired by the record Lumpy Gravy, which is an old classic Frank Zappa record. Yeah. That's kind of where we took our cue. But then we rolled a little bit of, you know, my fondness for some of the early uh, Return to Forever kind of stuff and weather report and uh, maybe a little fire sign theater. Yeah. Just everything that we loved. Mm -hmm. And uh, strangely enough, uh, actor Carl Weathers, who I'm sure you know who he is. Yeah. He was also hanging out around the, uh, the coffee shops where we were, and he saw this thing so as bizarre as a possible Broadway thing, like something that could be uh, shaped into some sort of a musical. So as we were developing it with, with uh, Carl, you know, we took a lot of meetings, and we sat there and we tried to shape it and mold it. But uh, I don't know, for some reason it felt, uh, at the end of the day, it felt kind of backwards. Usually when you write a Broadway musical, you start with a book. Right. You write the music with a book. Well, we already had the music, and we were trying to shove a book inside of it. It, <laughs> it was just get, it was going on and on and on, and you know uh, and God bless Carl for hanging in as long as he did, but it got to the point where we just said you know let's let's at least release this as a record, yeah and then if we want if we want to keep trying to make it into something else, we can. But uh, you know we got we have a solid record here that has a flow to it, right? And uh, it is designed to be listened to from beginning to end. It's yeah, kinda like smiling in that way. Not that I compare myself to to the genius uh, Brian Wilson, but the thing is designed to be
4: right.
2: If
0: you get it on iTunes. Make sure and set your player to no space between songs, otherwise the record doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
2: Well, and, and you just mentioned that it's available as a download. But I was curious. Did, did you ever release this as a CD?
0: We had a few CDs, we made a, maybe a few hundred or maybe a thousand, I don't remember however, how many we made, uh-huh. but uh, yeah, I'd like to make more because it does have a really nice package and, and great artwork and everything, yeah. so we, we, I'd like to do that again, I'd like to put it up on some other places for, you know, to make it available, Bandcamp and CD Baby and places, I think it is available on CD Baby, but... Uh,
2: yeah, I checked it and it's it's download only. Yeah.
0: yeah. Download only, yeah. yeah. I'd like to get some more hard copies out there, but... Uh, it took us four years. We really took our time yeah. on this thing. We kind of chipped away at it just in between other things, you know, which is, I'm kind of, I kind of do that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I do it with Steve, you know, with Andy, and, uh, and yeah. the same with Nesmith with the Groovin' Leather Pie record. That was also over right. a series of years. So, you know, just chipping away. But this thing is sort of my tour de force, just absolute
2: self-indulgent.
0: Yeah. Piece of work,
2: you well, know? you know, musically speaking, you know, like you said, it's very Zappa-esque, and it's it's a culmination of of so many different styles of music, you know, all kind of weaving seamlessly between one another, you know, rock, classical, jazz, pop, and sometimes even a little yeah. bit of international flavor in there. And, I mean, just just from the outset, how did you even begin conceptualizing the idea for this project and what it would be?
0: Well, you know, it kind of came together very organically. We just uh, started writing little pieces of music, and then we started realizing that these themes— a couple of these themes were, uh, were we started connecting themes between uh, different things. We would try variants. We would write a piece, and then we would do a variation on that. And uh, and uh, a lot of it came together through the idea of trying to make it into a musical, so we ended up right. grabbing Cersei Link and having her sing a little song of uh, uh what was it called? Sweet Dreams, S-U-I-T-E, which was kind of based on what the story was about Alec, and, you know, and whatever the story was at the time. So it was kind of a strange comedy of errors, the way the thing came together. It uh, yeah. started out as, a, as just an instrumental thing and then it kind of went into being some sort of a, a theatrical thing and and then it wove its way back to home. Uh, but uh, there, the, yeah, there's uh, a lot of genre blending going on, for sure. Well,
2: uh, well I sadly, we, did, I didn't know about it. You know, you, you, you brought this to my attention and I so I, you know, of course, I hopped on uh, iTunes and I, I listened to it all uh, last night. But it's like, like you said, you got to hear it from start to, be, to finish. And I, I think you and I were online chatting, and and uh, and, and I listened to the whole thing. <laughs> from start uh, to yeah. Well, I appreciate that because it is, it
4: is designed to
0: be sort of a journey. You can't, you can't there's really a, give it up you know, though. There's some funny little, you know, nods where the, the manager. It's kind of like yeah. those garage with you know the drillbo, and the electronic uh, voice managers. Explaining how to write a song and how important it is to like don't bore people with with uh, you know things they don't need. Just get to the hook and all that funny stuff. It's just it's <laughs> us just having a having a bit of a laugh.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then there's one one last thing. It's something I read on the Swifties Bizarre, uh website. It's something about Lou Wasserman and his glasses. And uh, tell me how those oh, yeah. came, how how did those come into play?
4: <laughs> well,
0: those glasses that, uh, that you see that you see Andy wearing yeah. like, you know on the cover. You yeah. look very close at the cover. There's a wind, There's a little window above him, where there's a very ghostly figure of white face right above him. Ah. Also, everything everything on the right side of the album is, is all my stuff. Uh, you'll see the Gluey Brothers and some other groups I produced, and uh, some pictures of my mom and dad and okay. instruments, my instruments. And then on the left is all sort of his, all Andy's things. But uh, Andy is wearing those glasses, and those glasses were given to him by Lou Watt. And uh, that's so funny. Andy's trying to call me right now. Uh, it's uh, yeah. So he spent a lot of time with Lou and I, his wife, whose name escaped me. But uh, yeah, most of the work was done, uh, you know, using those glasses. You know, so we just kind of made it a <laughs> made it a funny little, little, little uh, addition to the thing that it was written through Lou Osmond's glasses.
2: <laughs> that's very cool. Very cool. <laughs> well, you know, I don't think we can uh, actually end this segment uh, of discussion about Swifty's Bazaar. Without playing a track, because uh obviously it's the best way of, of explaining what this album is all about. So let's pause for a second and let's play a track. It's kind of a short track, as most of them are on this on this album, but this is the track called Janie's Chinese Chicken Salad Kit from our guest today, Michael Sherwood on Inside Music Cast. That's great. Well, there's, there's so much to discuss about your career, but if there's, you know, obviously one group of musicians that influenced you most in your career, I would, I would assume, like we talked about earlier, that it's the guys in Toto and your relationship with uh, Steve Porcaro. So I want to spend the last portion of our chat discussing your experiences with them. And, you know, we mentioned earlier that David Page and Steve Porcaro co-produced uh, your Logic album, but... You know, shortly after that project, uh, they invited you to sing backing vocals on a couple of tracks on Fahrenheit. And like you said earlier, uh, you, you did uh, "Till the End" and "Leah." Um, but you know, share some thoughts, you know, about working with uh, the late Jeff and Mike Precaro. And I, I love the story about Jeff and the Fahrenheit T-shirt he was wearing.
0: Oh yeah! You want me to tell that story? <laughs> yeah, tell us about that. That's that's pretty cool. well. well they were right down the street from our band house, you know, was the manor. Yeah. And so Steve would call me at all hours of the night and say, get down here, we're working on this, we're working on that. Mm-hmm. Come down here, Paige wants you to sing on this uh, some Toto stuff. And like, hey, yeah, I'm on my way. So, you know, I would jump down there and I went in there and I stacked up all the vocals until the end and just walked out of there like, wow, did I just sing on a Toto album? Wow, that's <laughs> cool. And, uh, and then the, but the Steve thing, Steve and I had already started nurturing some writing, so the Leah thing was pretty, it was what it was. It was the beginning of, uh, what ended up culminating in this new record that we we're about to release, but that, that was the beginning of that. However, I do remember when we were working on, uh, we were working on the Michael tune. We were working yeah. on full Time.
4: Yeah.
0: And, uh. Fair, no, no, that doesn't that doesn't sound right. It wouldn't be for all time. We were working on some other things that we were writing for My, for Michael to be considered, because okay. we wrote a lot of things. Uh, uh, and I remember Jeff walking in. Fahrenheit had just come out. Jeff walked in wearing this Fahrenheit T-shirt, and yeah. I said, Hey, man, he goes, Hey, I said, Wow, where can I get one of those T-shirts? He goes, Oh, this? And he pulled it off, just took it off and handed it to me. And there was no shirt. <laughs> Cause here, get this one. And I'm like, you know, the old saying: he'd give you the shirt off his back. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm here to tell you, he did. Uh, he did it, and uh of course, Steve went. Jeff, put your shirt back on. I'll give him. One. You know? Of course, Steve never did give me one, but that's okay. We <laughs> got a record out of it, but uh, he, that was, you know, J- Jeff didn't miss a beat. Oh, I'd love to get one of those shirts. Here, it was off. to <laughs> wow. me. Jeff was a great guy. He was always uh, holding uh, other artists up to the light. He was a real, uh, uh, you know, mentor. Just he, he had that mentor instinct. He loved. He loved ma- lifting you up, yeah. putting you up in the light, and he was so humble mm-hmm. and uh, such a giving guy and. uh Amazing. Um, And I will say also that uh, Mike Piccaro, uh, he, because the process that Steve and I had doing this new record for Steve, it was over such a long period of time that uh, Mike is the bass player on this new record uh, throughout, Mm -hmm. uh, before he was stricken with the ALS
4: thing. Right, right. He
0: had played, played, so he's, he's playing all over this record, so... You know, my experience with the Picaro brothers is just one of the most important musical relationships I have. Is being connected to that particular slice of musical royalty,
4: mm-hmm. and
0: mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, my my uh, thing with Paige, You know, i his dad. Marty played with my dad back in the day. And, oh, cool! You know, the, the the funny story about that was when uh, we were up there listening to some music and. And Paige goes, so who did your dad play with again? I go, do you have any of your dad's records? He goes, yeah. I go, hand me a couple. And I, he handed me, and I looked on the liner notes. and It said, Marty Paige, uh, early in his career, was piano player with Bobby Sherwood Orchestra. And <laughs> I pointed it out to Dave. I go, I think the question is, who did your dad
4: play We out of that.
2: I could see that coming. My, my dad can be yeah. of your dad.
4: You know? <laughs>
0: yeah. Did your dad play with? Well, my dad, was quite a bit, my dad was quite a bit older than you know. that. My funny. dad would have been my like, would have been one hundred and
4: two or something this year. You
2: know, wow. Well, let's talk about your recent involvement with Toto's latest album, Toto fourteen and and not only were you yeah. not only were you credited with a, a co write for the track Bend, which of course appears as a a bonus track in the Japanese release, which is unfortunate. I don't think it should have appeared on every album, but but you, you two. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a great tune. But you two uh, co-writing, you have co-writing credits with David Page for, um, or you have two co-writing credits uh, with David Page yeah. for Chinatown and All the Tears That Shine. And let's start with Chinatown. I mean, we all know that track was written back in the late 70s and didn't make the cut on the first album. So tell me how you were invited to step in and assist Page with rewriting or updating the song.
0: Well, I Dave and I had been writing as well. We had a sideline of writing that we were dipping in and out of through the years. He knew that Steve and I had a solid writing relationship. And, uh, you know, I guess Steve would say, Dave, you should call, should call Michael and have him come over and help you with the lyrics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think what happened is Paige really wanted to, the way he put it to me, he just wanted to up his game a little bit on the lyrics on this on 14. He wanted to really dig in and uh, a little more, and you can tell on this record that some of the best lyrics that I think Toto has come come up with. Some really strong lyrics on this record, and it's not 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 saying that because you know I'm involved. I'm just saying that he really he told me he said I want you to come in. I want you to be my Jimmy Webb. I'm like you know Dave, I can be your Jack Webb or something, but <laughs> I don't know Jimmy Webb. But uh, the Chinatown thing was surreal because I remember looking at that 24 track tape sitting in the corner yeah. forever at the banner and I knew the track and so when he called me to do it he gave me the original track so I wrote the original draft that I wrote yeah. I wrote I wrote to uh, Jeff and Hungate and you know the original guys and it sounded like the Boz record and I called it uh, I called it Silk Degrees of Separation yeah like, <laughs> And uh, it was, I, I was getting chills, you know, when I was working on that. Yeah. I would sit with my iPad and play the Chinatown track, and I'd be like, I can't believe I'm writing the lyrics to this thing. This is, <laughs> this is, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. Now, uh, Paige, Paige had had some lyrics that he had started, which were, you know, not really in the right uh, some some, relate, some of it was relating to Japan and some of it was related. It just wasn't accurate
4: as okay, uh, yeah.
0: I wanted it to be. So I want, my whole approach to Chinatown was I wanted to make sure, in the way that uh, Fagan and Becker do, when they mention specific you know, they're always mentioning specific places. Sure. So you know, he said something about they wanted to use something about Grant Street and I was like, no man, it's Grant Avenue. Right.
4: Grant
0: Street doesn't we, you know, first of all, we had to pick which Chinatown. We said, Oakland, okay, let's make it Oakland. And then it says, you know, and so all the references to the travelogue quality of that are are, are all honest. Um, Luke said, you know, Luke said, Paige brought Sherwood in to keep him honest.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, how Luke, that's how Luke put it. I think in an yeah. interview with you guys, he said.
2: <laughs> have, yeah, um, <laughs> we, talk, we did talk <laughs> yeah, about that.
0: Yeah. I remember correctly. Yeah, you brought Michael and Mikey in to keep them honest. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, you know, and then all the tears that shine. Yeah. That was just a pretty ballad that that uh, that uh, Paige and I had been chipping away at, and uh, he had the title, and, and then I took the idea of you know the tears, uh, falling into a saltwater pool, that, you know, and rippling and right. and and reflect in the water and the reflections in the eyes and I just made that connection of, of water and salt and tears and I kind of pulled all that together uh, onto the page um, but that song has some very personal thoughts in it about my then my situation in love situation uh, but uh, that uh, that song surprised me because Paige and I were writing that to pitch it to get it covered and then when he called me and said, we need to finish up Tears Toto wants to do it, I, you know, I couldn't believe it. I, I <laughs> couldn't believe it. I mean, I just, I just finished Chinatown, and all of a sudden, yeah. now this song out of nowhere. So, yeah, just, the, the surprises never stop with those guys, you know?
2: Yeah. 20
0: you years, ago, comes Michael Jackson, you know, you know, here comes Chinatown from 78. Gee, yeah, let's go. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you, Ben is, uh, Bend was for the, Carls solo album, and actually, I right. I was the singer on Bend originally. Yeah, and uh, that song. Uh, may I, if I may discuss that one. Yeah, um, we were going to
2: talk about that anyway. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I uh, that song started as an idea that Steve had. Uh, you know, images of his brothers of uh, uh, physical therapy, and but I love the idea. I love the word Bend, and mm-hmm. so I took it as an image kind of started in my mind with a single blade of grass just kind of pointing out on the ground and then the sun comes up and the grass just leans just ever so slightly towards the sun. That was my original image.
4: Mm -hmm.
0: And so I wanted to take this idea of bend and I wanted to make it about bending to each other's will and have it be about redemption and communication and, uh, you know, um, amends Mm -hmm. and uh, just Finding common ground, and I wanted it to be something that could be uh, universal. Mm-hmm. Although it is very personal at its core uh, with Michael, but I think uh, my, my challenge was to make it for the world. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, Steve has stepped way out of his comfort zone, and he's on stage singing that song yeah. in the Toto set now. Yeah. And I have never been more proud of him as a friend, yeah. as a padre, and partner in rhyme. Uh, he's just up there knocking it out of the park. And you know, when I hear him singing that song on stage, yeah. as a writer, you want to feel that <clears throat> that you're you're communicating, and your 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 heart and soul is getting through, and you're making connections with people. Well, when I hear Steve sing Bend on stage with Toto, I I I feel like I've done my job. It's it's very <laughs> satisfying. I have yeah. to tell
3: you. You know, last time when we spoke with uh, with Steve about about the album, we talked a little bit about um about Bend. And you know, you know what I found really interesting? You know how a lot of these amazing and probably the most beautiful things that, that Steve produces are, are, are beautiful ballads, right? Uh, he's just got the, he's just got the recipe for some, some amazing writing there. But with you, um, you know, uh, you know, he, it, he sort of brought us back then to the technical side because I always thought that he used a certain level of arpeggiation in some of the pads and the, and the modules behind. And I really was surprised that, that he answered, he said, you know what? It sounds like arpeggiation, but I'm playing every single note. You know, that's true. And I mean, that's... that blew my mind because, you know, in anybody, you know, it's that that's a keyboardist or into into the music. We'll see. Oh, no, there's a lot of arpeggiation going. It's it's nice. It's subtle. But he notates every single note. And I'm like, I was blown away by by the just the fact as to how he plays everything on, especially on bend.
0: It's true. Uh, you know, that's just his style of playing, uh, you know. Um, it 's all over the new solo album i mean there 's all kinds of of that stuff and yeah he he plays it he notates and plays that stuff and he's not, at, at no point is he just holding holding his hand down <laughs> exactly <laughs> at no point right. although although fame i will say this, famously famously when he did uh you know when he had the polyfusion yeah. uh gate right. controllers when he did uh oh, what was the song dirty laundry he brought this Farfisa organ or whatever the organ was and he just held it down and he put it through put a click track and he put it through the gate thing and he set the gates to go uh da da dot dot and he and he held the cord down and 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 he was doing that just to get get it perfectly locked with the click or whatever. So that that's my memory of the last time I ever saw him hold the
4: cord down.
2: exactly well, let's talk real quickly about Steve Percaro's solo album. And and of course, as you mentioned earlier, it's you guys have been working on this for, for many years. And uh in fact, when we first interviewed Steve back in two thousand nine, he shared with us, you know, a couple of songs he was working on then. But his you know, his work and television and scoring with with Toto has kept him so busy and he, you know, hasn't it hasn't allowed him or afforded him the time mm-hmm. to focus on the on the solo project like he wanted to. But but like he told us last summer during our interview with him, you know, he, he really wanted to get this finished. So and and you mentioned to me last year that, you know, you were taking the responsibility of, of motivating Steve to get it finished and by motivating I think you termed it a different way <laughs> but uh, well, whatever it was it worked and, and I it, said light a
4: fire under his ass. that's exactly what it was
2: <laughs> <laughs> thank you Michael that's the one <laughs> but the, you know of course the album is titled Someday Somehow and it's such a release I think now it's been pushed back to June and uh, at least that's what I've seen online and, and of course you had a major role in this one and uh um, you know, there's there's quite a few guests on this album, including, you know, Michael McDonald. We we know Luke's on it, Lenny Castro, Sam Percaro, Mavuto, um, Jamie uh, Kimmett, to name a few, but they're... Jimmy
0: Hahn. Jimmy Hahn, yeah. Jimmy Hahn, oh, yeah, it's all over.
2: Yeah, but but there are uh, two uh, very special guests on this album, and of course, those are Brothers Mike and Jeff Procaro. Um, sort of a Procaro Brothers reunion, and can you explain how that came about? Are you at liberty to talk about that?
0: I am, uh, and I can tell you, I because Mike had been playing throughout the record and, you know, as I may have mentioned before, even some of the things that Mike didn't play that our synth bass, you know, when he couldn't play anymore, he would give us, he would sing us the parts and the notes and and, and we would play them in.
4: So yeah.
0: Even if he was physically playing, it was it was his thoughts and his ideas. He was very gracious uh, mm-hmm. uh, about being the bass player on this record. Yeah. Uh, the, ones, the one song that uh, the title track is actually his son Sam is playing beautifully. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, because Mike was all over the record, I would say things to Steve under my breath like, wouldn't it be great to just find, like, you know, dig up an old 24-track an old tapes and find a 16-bar, 8-bar, 16-bar loop, of, find some Jeff drums, and see if we can put Jeff and Mike and you together and uh, on a track. Yeah. And Steve, in his ultimate wisdom, said, yeah, that just uh, sounds too forced to me man you know and I said yeah you're probably right so we just kind of let that go and then one day we were just having a chat working on some lyrics in the room where I looked up and I saw a 24 track tape said back to you and I said back to you I remember that song you played that for me years ago he goes yeah I said you sing that that's your song he goes yeah I said "Um, Jeff's playing on that right he said uh huh I said tell me it's not Hungate. <laughs> yep. And he goes, no, it's Mikey. Oh, okay. And I said, well, I said, well, what, what, transfer that shit and let's, you know, let's go. Yeah. And he said, he said, well, the lyrics aren't quite there yet. And I said, don't worry about it. the lyrics. You can punch those up. You know?
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: So uh, I didn't end up writing any of the lyrics, but I just ended up organizing the ones he had and, and shaping them. So I just kind of did that, but I, I didn't take a credit. But, uh, nor should I have uh, But you know It's called Throwing a bone I'll throw you a bone On this one Just Just get it, you, just get it <laughs> over there And we'll figure it out So uh, he, we tra- Usually A request like that You know From our You know From our, our patterns From before And maybe about Two three months later To go I say, Did you transfer The <laughs> Did you transfer Yes I'm telling you man Two days later Steve called me And said alright It's transferred Come over There's actually Two different versions I want to get your input But and we were in high gear. I could tell we oh, were going to. Cool. We, we decided to give ourselves a deadline. So yeah, um, there were some others playing on there, but we ended up taking everybody else out. Some of the other cats, I and mean, maybe even Luke was on there at first, but mm-hmm. it sounded like everybody was just kind of noodling and finding their way through. There wasn't anything on there. They were obviously just trying to get a good rhythm track, right? Which right. Made, Greg Ladani did a great job of recording the drums. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it ended up just being. I said, it's just got to be the three of you guys, man. Power Trio, man. Just the three Picaro brothers, just like that. And, you know, not forced. It's it's exactly as it happened. You know, we, he added a few, he upgraded a few of the uh, surrounding new sounds or whatever. But at the core is the track from '83, uh, Mike, Jeff, and Steve. That's and so then Steve cool. went in and re sang it. And, uh, Oh, I did. Uh, I did ask if I could uh, add a background vocal because there's no way I didn't want to be on that damn
4: <laughs> <laughs> So
0: I got one little note where I'm like, "Hey, thank you." I, so I got uh, I got my voice in there, man. You know, Good. I, 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 Mama, Mama didn't raise the fool. But, uh, there's also a gentleman, uh, Don Marquise, who does all the woodwinds on the Tangletown record, uh, as well as all all the winds on on the Procol record he's playing a little penny whistle on there. So it's just the five of us on that one track. It's The yeah. Picaro brothers, Don Marquis, and, and uh, me in my one little note. So. That's so cool. <laughs> and it's, it's
3: awesome. Yeah, well, Michael, without giving too much away, tell me, uh, what can fans expect, musically speaking, from this album? Are you at liberty to say a little bit?
0: I couldn't tell you that, well, Steve Picaro has such a strong musical signature. Mm-hmm. When you listen to songs like Human Nature, or It's a Feeling, right. or "Secret Love, yeah, he's got such strong stamp. You, you know, mm-hmm. it, he's very lucky that way. You know, I'm not yeah. that lucky. I, people hear my music and go, oh, very Gabriel. But uh, Steve, when you hear Steve Picaro music, he's got a certain world he puts you in. right? So, That's, you to the song, you know, a perfect example is The Little Things, yeah. Total 14, which was yes. also uh, poached from the <laughs> solo album along with Ben. Yeah. It's okay. We were very happy to, to offer him up, but both of those songs were originally on the solo record. Right. But Steve, Steve has a way of putting you in a world. He's got an atmosphere. Uh, it's a uh, Pocarian aroma that is very strong. <laughs> Uh, when, when it's Steve. So what <laughs> the fans can expect is a Steve Picaro album. Yeah. I was originally singing a lot of the tunes. I said, Steve, anytime you think you can take a stab at these, you should be singing as mm-hmm. many of these as possible. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't going to do that originally. You know, he was going to have a lot of different singers, maybe sing one or two. And he ended up singing six or seven, you know. So he really stepped up. So you're just going to hear, you're going to get that Steve Ficarro atmosphere, and then you get that, that very uh, vulnerable voice that he has, uh, which is great. And uh, and then Michael McDonald kicks in singing, and it sounds like it's got that Toto Steely doobies. That it's all from the same yeah. family tree, yeah, so yeah. it makes little sense. And it still still sounds like a Picaro song, but it's Mike McDonald, but it doesn't it doesn't all of a sudden sound like a Mike McDonald record. It still sounds like a Picaro record, and then Jamie Kimmett comes in, and he sounds uh curiously like uh a Michael Jackson. uh he's got that wow. same range,
4: yeah
0: well. mm-hmm. so when Jamie yeah. comes in singing it still sounds like Steve Picaro,
4: yeah, yeah.
0: On the human nature tip. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then I, I got one song in there that, you know, whatever. I, I got my one little riff in there, Uh song called Makeup. And then the last singer uh, is uh, Mobuto Carpenter, who sings uh, background vocals live. Right. We have a song Painting by Numbers that Jamie Kimmett originally sang, but we wanted to get a little more of a, uh, you know, straight up soul singer on there. So Mobuto just knocked it out of the park. Cool. But then when Mabuto sings, when you hear the track and the atmosphere and the world that you're in, it's undeniably, it never stops being a mm-hmm. Steve Fokar record. That's cool. And it, as the background vocals were treated in such a way where even though it was another lead singer, whatever chorus comes in or whatever, you, it's, you can tell it's Steve's, Steve's voice is very a big part of everything. Yeah. So it, it maintains this the promise of being a Pocaro record. It's not like a Quincy Jones record with a bunch of different different artists. It's, it's a Steve Pocaro record through and through and that's what the
4: fans can expect.
2: Well, I don't know if you know this, but we uh, at Inside Music Cast, we have a, um, an Album of the Year uh, award that we, we do. We, 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 between the correspondents, we all vote and nominate albums for Album of the Year. And, and the one that I nominated, I knew somebody was going to nominate it, but it was Toto 14. And so in my review, the one thing I mentioned that um, I thought made this album special was, was Steve Ricaro's um, contributions to this album, and the, because we haven't heard that since what was it, the, the seventh one, I think. So you know it's been a long time since we've heard, you know, Steve intermixed, intertwined with Luke and Paige and all their contributions and everybody else. So that's, that's, that's what made it special to me. And I, I, you're right, Steve has his own brand, his own signature, and it, it really shines through.
0: It's true, and imagine my delight because I had been working on this record with Steve for years, and this was this record was just going to come out of left field. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, this yeah. Steve Carl record, but due to a turn of you know unfortunate events, that you know that turned out to be total fourteen. But but now the, the, the record is not coming out of left field as a Steve Carl solo album. It's coming on the heels, in the wake, catching the wind, if you will. Yeah. Of uh, it's it's coming in on the total 14 breeze so I could not be as co-producer I could not be more delighted about that little tournament the fact that we're actually bringing it in as sort of the next thing for the total fans and the awareness is so much higher than it would have been and yeah it 's a perfect storm it 's a perfect time perfect storm per- perfect time for this record to be
2: released well we can 't wait to hear it uh, we're we're we 're as jazz as anybody to to hear it and uh we 're looking forward to its release yeah, in yeah, June or done. whenever it happens but uh yeah. but you know we want to thank you so much for spending all this time with us. This was a fun interview, and it was great Absolutely. to get to know to know you more we 've been wanting to get you on this show for a long long time, but sure. uh, finally we did it and uh, before we go one one thing i i got to ask you to do if you don 't mind doing it is. Give us your Archie Bunker impersonation. <laughs> I heard you doing that one.
0: Oh, with- I'm If oh, there's anybody here that doesn't think that Lee Harvest Oswald, who's well. actually what's called John Kennedy Chris Jerry, needs to have his head exterminated by a vagina <laughs> uh, Something like that? I don't
2: I think that did I'll well.
0: Say I'll say this. If you just want to go out there and buy what's called your Steve McConnell record, that's your provocative. <laughs>
2: <laughs> i saw i saw that you i saw that youtube clip with the joan baez when you guys were on stage together and i lost it that was so funny yes <laughs> and she did a good uh, at edith edith there. too that was fascinating
0: <laughs> well uh very briefly just briefly i, I was out with a guy danny peck who's a great artist out here in la and danny peck and i were touring with joan joni and uh I started doing that shtick backstage. I would walk by and go, oh, June by the end. She said, Call me Pinko. And I'd start in on her, you know, every day. <laughs> and one day I walked in, walked in and she started up. Oh, watchie. Wow, and then we started riffing throughout the whole tour. That was our stick from the bus whatever. And then, uh, closing night, closing night of the tour in Denver, I said, can I get a little video of you and I backstage here do it with Archimedes for my friends? She goes, only if you come out on stage and do it with me tonight. Oh, I'm wow. Like, oh, gee, let, me, let me think about it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so there you go. that happened right. And it was just a surreal, strange <laughs> unusual moment, I'm
2: right now. <laughs> but funny, oh,
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very funny, yeah,
2: yeah, well, cool, well, Michael, thanks again for all your time, and uh we will definitely keep in touch. we want to keep up with what you're doing, and uh who knows, maybe we can chat again sometime in the future, I'm sure we can
0: yeah, well, I appreciate all the you know the support, and you guys you got a great little thing going on over there, man, you guys are very uh uh intuitive and uh you you just you're wonderful. I really appreciate the opportunity to finally be on and and share all my uh my stories. So, uh, thank you. Thank you very much. And I uh, I love the fact that I got to be doing on my brother's birthday today. Yay. That's right. Tell
2: him happy birthday for us.
0: <laughs> I will. Very uh, cool. thanks guys so much.
2: All right, thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Special thanks to Michael Sherwood for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Loretta Sassaman, Scott Sheriff, and Don Brightup, for their continued support and content development for Inside MusicCast. Inside MusicCast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside MusicCast.